And a fine fellow named Zerubbabel builds a new temple in the same place. It's not a particularly big or impressive temple. They were poor, they were struggling, they had people trying to kill them while they were building it, and so on. Um, so they build a big, nice temple, but it's not what it was or what it would be. Uh, but it's built in the same place right here on the Temple Mount, Zerubbabel's Temple. So we call this the Second Temple, although 99% of the time when you hear people refer to the Second Temple, they're talking about Herod's Temple. But th this, this is actually the Second Temple. Herod's just a kind of redoing of this one, only much nicer. Um, and the Second Temple period includes all that time from Zerubbabel until the destruction of Herod's Temple. But we, you could call this Phase 1. And I'll just say, I'm, I'm grateful for this little slide being put together. A couple of slides I'll show you were put together by my friend uh, Jeff Chadwick, uh, fantastic uh, scholar and uh, professor here in uh, my same college. Anyway, uh, this is phase one of that second temple. Then we get a second phase of that. And this happens when, we'll have to come back to the story again later, but you, you may be familiar with the story, if not this really brief history. Um, the Israelites, after coming uh, under Cyrus the Great, the Persians, back with Zerubbabel, and they build that temple, but they're under the Persian Empire. <coughs> then uh, Alexander the Great conquers the area, and when he dies, it's divided up among his generals, and for a while it's under uh, his general Ptolemy and the Ptolemaic Empire, but eventually his other general, Seleucus, who set up the Seleucid Empire, his empire takes it back from the Ptolemies. It goes back and forth a few times. There are a couple of really cool, cool stories with elephants and pigs in there, but anyway. Uh, eventually, the Seleucid Empire takes it over. So these are Hellenistic, we call them Greek-style rulers that are ruling, and they really, really oppress the Jews um, and desecrate the temple. Um, uh, in fact, um, in one of my lectures, lectures on the series, uh, we'll do one on the uh, destruction of the temple, and we'll talk about the abominations and desolations, and this is one of them. The, uh, uh, the Seleucids destroying and desecrate, or they don't destroy, but they desecrate that temple. That causes the Jews to rebel against them under a group called the Hasmoneans, also known as the Maccabees. And um, the uh, Maccabees rebel against these Greek rulers and uh, miraculously win. And when they win, they rededicate the temple. We'll talk more about that rededication in a little while. Oops. Okay, yeah, phase two. So it's still the same temple. This is Zerubbabel's temple still, but uh, they redo some of the, the area. I'll show you more of this later, but they extend the platform. They make it bigger uh, for the temple precinct, and they just kind of refurbish a little bit, all right? So that's still part of the second temple period, but it gets redone by the Hasmoneans or the uh, uh, Maccabees, whichever name you'd like to give them. And then Herod comes in, he makes it even bigger, so they, they had extended it. He extends this out even further. We'll look at that some more as we go along. And he makes the temple magnificent. He doesn't tear down the old temple. He basically builds over it, guts it out, and but anyway, he just makes this one of the most magnificent buildings in the world. One of the largest temples in the world. We're talking in the heyday of Rome. He still makes it one of the largest temples in the world, one of the most magnificent spectacular temples in the world. So that some of the Jewish scholars wrote. Uh, he who has never seen the temple has not seen beauty. Uh, it was a spectacular building. So we'll try and give you a sense for that. This is a model of that temple. Uh, it was, there was a model of the city of Jerusalem, including the, the model of the temple that was built um, that was at a hotel. It's since been moved to the, the Israel Museum, but I took these pictures when it was at a hotel. Um, and it's just a spectacular model. So many of the pictures I'll show you will be from that. Um, it is built, and some of you will have encountered some uh, interesting videos that suggest that it was uh, really in the Giva parking lot. If you want to talk more about that later and why that's very crazy, we can do that. But um, uh, almost certainly, it was, I mean, I'm like 99.9% certain it was built here where the Dome of the Rock currently is. Um, and this is the platform that Herod built for that. So, why he built this platform for the temple, if the temple was there, I don't know, but anyway. Um, so here's just some more pictures, so you can kind of uh, picture this model, and some, some artistic renderings of the temple and the huge altar that was built for it. Now this is just to give you an idea. Here's the current Dome of the Rock. Um, there's some argument as to whether the Holy of Holies was right square where the Dome of the Rock is now, or whether it was off just a little bit, I don't know. But what we do know is that Herod's temple was bigger, much bigger than 
that we're currently building the Denver Rock. So, uh, if you were to look at this today, we'd be looking at that at the temple being about there, maybe a little bit bigger than that. So, this was really a, a big and striking building with lots of gold on it. We'll show you some, some pictures of some of that in a moment. With all sorts of courts, and here you can get that idea of ascension much better with these great, big, spectacular stairs going in and more going inside. Um, all sorts of coloring. Again, we kind of lose this, but they often painted the, the columns and so on, all sorts of coloring on them. So here's a close-up of some of the, those uh, columns that still remain there. And you can see just a little bit of the gold and the blue flecks on there. So it had actual gold and then blue and, and uh, orangish paint. Um, there you can get kind of close-up to get an idea of some of that paint that still remains um, from that. So you get an idea of the, this really spectacular nature of this uh, temple. Uh, and then again from that model, but you can see the size of that whole mount, that platform that Herod, that was already there, but then he made much larger. Uh, and then again, just court after court, and places for people to gather and to sell, uh, and that kind of thing, which we know the Savior was very fond of. So, um, but he did love to teach in these, and we'll talk more about that in a minute, but this is just to kind of give you an idea of the size, the splendor, and, and just what it would have been like where the Savior, he was often teaching in, in what was called Solomon's Porch, which is this area. So, uh, just lots of pictures for you to try and, and picture what that would have been like. All right. Um, also, to give you an idea of some of the remains, they did build. There were several ways to get into the temple. One of them was uh, along these this big set of stairs that came up and over and <coughs> in. Um, here's another depiction of that. There was also a bridge over here that you could go across. There are remains of these today. So this is uh, called Robinson's Arch because he's the one who found it. Here you can see up on the remains today, that's where what's left of that arch that went over the stairs and came back down. So there's some of this, just a little bit of it remains today. Um, there's another uh, picture. Uh, and there were all sorts of, this is a depiction at the spot of the kind of stores that would have been all around there. And here's uh, my, my friend, another professor here, Frank Judd, in the remains of some of those stores those shops. Uh, the western wall is part, uh, it, it, part of that wall, but it was much, much longer and larger and went down a long ways from what you can see here. Uh, in fact, what you see here, this is not, and I'll show you a picture of this, but these are not stones from Herod's time. When you get into these big stones, these are stones from Herod's time. Herod built with great, big, beautiful stones that usually have this bossing around them, like this. Some of them, this would be the small edge, it would have gone longer going in this way. He built kind of like you would with Lincoln Logs, right? Because that's what gives you stability. So you'd have what we, what they would call a stretcher stone and then a header stone. But, and you do it with hay bills, right, too, if you're going to make a haystack. Long and then long this way and then long this way. And that, that adds stability to the, the building. Um, so that's what he did. So you're looking at the short side here of one of the smaller blocks. Just to give you an idea, this is one of the, this is the largest block we're aware of at this point. It starts here, and it goes way down to the other side of my students there. Um, that's the biggest single block known in the history of the world, a uh, uh, building block of stone. So um, if you were to look at it today, you can see uh, all sorts of masonry. It's just been built by people again and again and again. So this is a wall that was built uh, by uh, Nehemiah. It got up this far. Then you have the Maccabees. That, that built out this far, and then Herod built it out that much further. So they just kept building uh, on top of the hill that went down. They'd have to build arches to, to, to build it up to just make the, the um, platform get larger and larger so they could fit more and more people and more and more buildings on there. Uh, and then by today, that's been built on top of by uh, crusaders and uh, Muslims and uh, all sorts of people there. There's a mess of stone on top, and, but you can always tell where it's Herod's. They've got all sorts of little small stones, not as good and so on, and then you get to these great big, beautiful, amazing stones that are still really solid in place. That's Herod's stuff. Herod was a bad guy, let's be clear about that, but he was one good builder. Um, <laughs> he, he built uh, as well as anyone ever in the history of the world, uh, and uh, he, he did some interesting stuff. So, again, you can see the temple here. This is uh, how far they got out, this is currently called the bead. Uh, they got out during the, the before the Hasmoneans or the Maccabees. The Maccabees built it up this wall before, and then we get what we call the straight seam, which is where the junction where Herod built it out even further, basically, so they could put this huge porch on there. Um, so, again, you can kind of get the idea. We've got the different arches we were looking at. 
how far the temple went out naturally. That was where it was kind of flat. And then the Hasmoneans built arches to support it going out further. And then Herod built more bigger arches to support it going out further. All right. So then you get this big complex like this. And that's, so here on the model, that's the same thing right here. Same scene, and you can see the Herodian stone goes up to here and then some places here. Then you get all these other people building. This is Crusader stuff. Uh, this is uh, later uh, Muslim stuff. So here is where you can see that straight seam. So if you just want to get how much Herod built it out, it's from here on out, uh, an aerial view, so you can see how much he extended it. Um, just to give you an idea of the size of this, the platform after Herod built it, it's trapezoid shaped, it's not exactly uh, rectangular, but it, it's got, it's 1,550 feet long and about 1,000 feet wide east-west, it, it expands a little over time. Um, so just so you know the size, it's about 144,000 meters square or 36 acres. To give you an idea, that's 33 football fields put together. That's the size of the platform. Uh, it's a pretty impressive space that, that he built, all right? It's one of the largest sacred precincts in the world, larger than any of Rome. Not as big as Karnak, but larger than anything at Rome. So it's actually pretty impressive what, what Herod did. Um, Jesus did love to teach in Solomon's porch. Uh, he taught there a number of times the last week of his life at the, the Feast of Dedication of Hanukkah, or sorry. Um, there's arguments as to whether that means this area or this area. My guess would be it actually refers to any of these colonized places. Um, but he often taught in those covered areas with uh, large groups there. Uh, so when you picture the Savior teaching in the temple, picture him most often teaching in a space like this. Uh, that's, that's the kind of place that the Savior is teaching. Now to just give you an idea, on the southern side, this is the most common entrance. We, it seems like the southern entrance may have been largely, at least one of them, largely reserved for priests. There may have been one that was priests and common people, but mostly common people entered in in these areas. Um, <clears throat> what's known as the triple gate and the double gate. Um, there's some disagreement as to which archaeological remains are really the triple gate and the double gate. I looked into this really extensively, and I don't know why there's disagreement. It seems clear to me, but the way academia works is that you have to disagree with someone to be able to get published and get a job. <laughs> so <laughs> there are all sorts of stupid disagreements. But anyway. Uh, so this is a good depiction of what uh, this would have looked like, uh, although I think it may have been the broader set of stairs over here, but it's impossible to tell because at this point, uh, Crusader Wall was built right here, so it's hard to know what happens on the other side. Anyway, so you've got the triple gate entrance there and the double gate entrance there. This is important to picture. Uh, they're pretty clear that you entered in one and you came out the other. You entered in the triple gate, you came out the double gate. That helps us because there are some New Testament stories that would take place there then. So let's let's get some pictures. These are the remains of the triple gate. Uh, the the uh, crusaders walled them up because they were having battles and trying to hold the ground inside, and so it wasn't nice to let your invading enemies have a nice space to go up. So they walled them up, now you can't go in. But, uh, but this is where the triple gate was. So if you know the story where Peter and I believe uh, John are going into the temple, and they meet a man who was um, lame, and they say, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I given to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, arise and walk. That had to have taken place somewhere on these steps in this area right here, because they do it just as they're going into the temple, and that's the most, well, not necessarily there, but that's the most common area to go, way to go in the temple. That's the default way, so it's unlikely it can be anywhere else. That's, that's probably where the story took place. Or for example, the double gate, was right here, there's my friend Frank Judd again. Um, but the double gate, it's not this, but right below it is all that's left of the double gate. The Crusaders built this thing going up on there. But this is where the entrance was. So when the Savior is leaving the temple and he finds a man who had been born blind, and we'll talk about that story in a minute, um, and he heals him, that almost certainly took place right here because this almost certainly is where he would have exited the temple. Um, it's possibly exited in an unusual way, but it doesn't seem like it. It seems like they're going in and out the normal way. Um, so that's probably where that story took place. And some of these steps you can see, like uh, this stuff is modern, but some of these are the same stairs that were there at the time. Uh, here you can see close up, you can just see right there, you see the edge, the, the, the archway that was that outer corner of the double game. So, 
Uh, and just to give you an idea of what they had to do to build uh, this platform so that it would work, the Romans uh, had come up with this arch building system that is fantastic, it can support so much weight. Uh, and so they built these kind of tunnels that were basically all big arches that supported this huge um, area. And so here's some pictures, you can't go down there anymore, but I, I was there uh, in the 90s when they did let you go in. And so here's some pictures uh, of what's underneath there. And then uh, in uh, so the mosque area there. Uh, but this is what it most likely would have looked like underneath at the time. All right, so we are going to do this. Uh, some colleagues of mine here at BYU, Tyler Griffin, and others have uh, created a, a wonderful 3D uh, recreation of this. So we'll just do that for a second. You can go there at virtualscriptures.org. Uh, I'll give you a website on the last slide. Um, that is the best I've worked for. I've just listed all these things I keep talking about. You can just find them there, all right? But, uh, but you can just find that here. When you go to virtualscriptures.org, it will, uh, it's not like the, the one I showed with the tabernacle where you're just automatically there. You're going to have to download some stuff to make this work. So when you go there, you'll have to download some zip files, then you unzip them, and you end up with something like this. So let's hope that my internet connection is, is still working, and this will work. All right, so this put together by BYU, this stuff. Um, you can do the whole city of Jerusalem, but we're going to go that's kind of loud.
Passover is the one we hear about most often, though we do hear about some other, and we'll talk about it, uh, two times he went up that weren't Passover here for a little while. Um, people would also come for various kinds of purification offerings. There are different things you would, reasons you would need to make an offering, and you would go to the temple for that. Um, some came regularly to receive a blessing to pray and, and hear a Torah and so on, and some came only on those or only when they could afford it, right? Some just couldn't afford to go. You live a long ways away and you're poor, you can't always make it there, right? You have to stay working the land and so on and so on. Um, but those who were close came more regularly, including some people like uh, Anna and Simeon, who seemed to go every day. Okay, let's talk about uh, the structure. There may have been a bridge that went across the Kidron Valley to, to get there. Um, we don't know, but th there's some evidence for that. Uh, you could also enter on the south side through those big stairs that I, I showed you, or on the west side, that's where the triple and, and double gate were. Um, there were porches on the south side and a few porches on the east. Um, on the south side, there were 162 columns. It was called the Royal Soa, and that may be Solomon's porch, all right? But 162 columns that held up the, the, the shaded area where they would often teach and gather, all right? All of that is in what is called the Court of the Gentiles. Anyone can go to the Court of the Gentiles. Then you get uh, uh, separation, separating it from the Court of the Women, where the women can go, then there's the Court of the Men, where the men can go, and then after that, it's only priests that can go further in, all right? Um, so there were gates that permitted entry from between where the Gentiles could go and where the women Israelites could go, all right? So when I say women, that's women Israelites. Anyone could go to the court of the Gentiles, only Israelites afterwards. We talked about kind of the symbolism behind that and the covenant and so on in the first lecture, so we won't get into it too much here. Um, for the most part, every now and then there was a, a, something that caused them uh, to feel like there was a reason not to, like a, a, a riot or something like that, but 99.9% .9 of the time, yes, that's that's true, and, and we're not 100% sure that they ever went into, riots may have been in the outer, that we don't get enough information to know whether the riots they were dwelling were further in or not. So it's not completely clear, maybe they always kept it, maybe there were a couple times that they, they broke that. Um, here are the signs, and we've actually found two of these signs. There were signs that were put around those gates going between the court of the Gentiles and others, the sign said, no Gentiles shall enter inward of the partition and barrier around the temple, and whoever is caught shall be responsible to himself for his subsequent death. <laughs> so you notice how big that is. They're very good. They're not saying because the Romans wouldn't have let them say this. They're not saying we will kill you. They're just saying you're going to die. If not, we're not saying how. Maybe that God takes care of it. Maybe we do. You'll find out. So, um, so only covenant members go past there, all right? Um, when you're coming to the temple, if you come further from modern-day Modain, so about half an hour in good traffic, maybe 40-minute drive in good traffic, um, then you're considered an outsider. You're out of Judea, or out of Judea. Um, and thus, anyone who came that far had to bathe. It's likely everyone did anyway. And by bathe, a ritual immersion, all right? That's a ritual immersion that would make you completely clean um, ritually. And uh, it, it probably most people did every time anyway, because you never knew if you accidentally went across something that made you unclean on the way in anyway. So they would emerge in these mikvaot, or, or uh, these uh, immersion places. Uh, there, This is one that's found just on the uh, west side of the temple, but we find them all over the place. You can see my mom and mother-in-law there, so am I. But, uh, there are all sorts of, of these all around, and you can see that they would have, they're divided so that the clean people go, or the unclean people going in don't touch the unclean people. Or so if the unclean people are going in, someone who's been immersed is now clean, as they're going out, they don't want to touch so that they transmit uncleanness, right? So you can see that kind of little divider right there, so that, uh, see my mom's on the unclean side, that's all right, so if you enter at the temple, then there's a Levite who will sprinkle them with water, coming from a palm front, right? Uh, it with water combined with ashes of red heifer. This is all uh, sanctifying stuff, so that you go in, you're, you're cleansed again. We just want to make sure you're clean when you go inside, okay? There were daily rituals. Uh, we won't go through all of them. We'll go through just a little bit. Morning is announced by two trumpets with three short bursts. All right, so that's the alarm for the entire city. Um, there was a sacrifice made in the morning. Now, there's a reason I'm going through this one, because we're going to talk about the Annunciation of John in just a moment, and that happens at this morning ritual, all right? So you get the, uh, the trumpet, and then 
there, a lot is drawn to see who gets to make the, the, the do different duties, all right? Who will clear the ashes off of the altar, who will kill the uh, first sacrificial ritual, who clears the ashes away from the incense altar, or who cleans out the candlestick, or who will clear the bones out when the sacrifice is done, and so on and so on and so on, right? Everything, your job for the day is determined by lot, all right? The slaughter, that, that first sacrifice can't happen until dawn, so they listen for the trumpets. When the trumpets happen, they know they can go forward with the slaughter. Um, you first skin and gut the animal, and then you you burn it, right? Uh, this is how you decide who offers incense. And again, this is important for the, the Annunciation of John. Uh, oh, the, the, yeah, the lots also decide who, who offers incense, um, and who offers the prepared animal, and so on and so on. Right? So a lot decides all of those things. Uh, the priest who is going into the Holy Holy for the light of incense will go up 12 steps into the Holy Place, and that allows him, to, and, and it was specifically 12 steps with all the symbolism of the of 12 uh, and the House of Israel, and then uh, he could go in and, and perform that ritual. And the same thing with the, putting the shoe bread, new shoe bread in there and lighting the menorah. Well, because you can never be unlit, but you have to change the oil out and so on, right? Okay. So with all that, that kind of preps us to look at some specific temple stories and try and get into the symbolism of those stories, all right? So these are stories that you're familiar with, and I hope that you understand them just a little bit more by the time we're done. And that, that it will also just be an exercise so that as you're reading the scriptures, whenever you, in the New Testament, whenever you encounter something happening in the temple, you'll say, okay, wait, there's probably symbolism in the fashion. I think there are no occasions where the Savior is at the temple where he doesn't draw on the symbolism. If that ever happens. So stop them trying to say, well, is there some symbolism I could be getting them? All right, so let's look first at the Annunciation of John, the first story of the New Testament, and it happens in the temple, and it's got some pretty cool symbolism, all right? So here we've got this little diagram, and this is the court where they can do uh, the court of the men, right? And then you go up steps, and this is where you do the sacrifices and so on, and then you go up further steps, and you go in here, whoops, uh, to where the altar of incense is. If you were with me on the first lecture and we did the tabernacle, you're very familiar with this by now, okay? So, um, incense was burned twice a day, seven days a week, morning and evening, they go in and burn incense there every day, all right? On special rituals, then more incense would be burned, but there's at least daily this, this happening, all right? Zechariah is in the eighth of 24 priestly orders. So there are 24 orders, two from uh, not two from each tribe, but re uh, some, well, they're all Levites, but it's re representative of two from each tribe, morning and night. Um, there are probably about 800 priests that are serving at a time, okay? Each order spends two weeks a year, plus all sorts of festivals. So there were enough people who were descended from Aaron that were priests that there's no way they could all be serving all the time. There were some special priestly families that served as, as high priests or, or could end up being high priests and they were at the temple most of the time. But most priests lived all sorts of places, and then there was like one place of priests in Jericho and different places in Jerusalem and so on. So they would come and, and do their two weeks a year, and then tons of them would be called upstate for Passover when they needed almost everyone to keep up with all the people and all the rituals going on and so on. Right? Uh, burning of incense was done by Lot, and at least according to some accounts, it was Lot of those who hadn't done it before. As long as there was someone there who had not done it before, then they would get a turn before someone else that had done it before could do it twice, all right? And it seems like there are enough people at this time, we don't have real detailed records, but it seems like it, that most of the time there was someone who hadn't done it before, all right? Where now, described in, uh, It's described in the uh, Mishnah, which is where uh, about 100 years after the temple is destroyed, um, the priests who passed down what they did decided we better write this down because without the temple we're gonna lose track of it. And it's called the Mishnah. Um, and, and they started to write down things that they did at the temple. Um, so, uh, Zechariah is fairly old and seemingly has never had this opportunity before. He's just had not had the luck of the draw, as it were. But on this day, he gets the luck of the draw. Now it's not long. This is the day he was meant to go in and have this experience. Um, but I want you to think of that, but this is a, 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 what a day this is for Zechariah already, before he sees an angel. His whole life he's been waiting for this opportunity, and finally, he is the one. This is as close as anyone who is not the high priest will ever get to the Holy of Holies. Right? The high priest once a year goes into the Holy of Holies. This is as close as anyone else will ever get. So one day in his life, it looks like, 
he gets to go up and be right next to the veil. That's an exciting day for Zechariah, right? Now, um, the tradition is that whoever burns incense is blessed with some kind of wealth, or that their prayers are answered. Now think of that. Remember, if you were with me on the first lecture, that some of the symbolism of the, the incense altar is that the smoke symbolizes the prayers of the saints ascending up to God. So when you get to be the one that officiates at that, the, the feeling was, this is when your prayers are really answered. Well, now that's fantastic, because what have Zechariah and Elizabeth been praying for for so long? I think they've given up at this point. But they have been praying for so long that they will have a child. And on this day, when he can go in and offer the incense with all the symbolism associated with that, his prayer will be answered. That's part of the symbolism of what's going on here. I think that's an important part of the symbolism that, that the original readers of the New Testament would have understood. And that those who were experiencing it would have understood. But that we need to do a little work to be able to understand. Right? That his prayer is finally being answered. All right? Let's talk about the symbolism of his meeting an angel there. Um, remember that the incense or prayers are sending up to God, so we've talked about that. His prayer is being answered, but in a way, all of Israel's prayers are being answered on this day. This is not the day that the Savior comes, but this is the beginning of that process. This, that, there's a reason this is the first word in the New Testament. It is the first step in what will result eventually in that veil being ripped as the Savior is crucified. So, um, incense is, is what you go through before the admission to God's presence. It's the last step before you get to come to the presence of God. This is the last step, the annunciation of the birth and then the birth of the forerunner, before God's presence comes on earth, meaning Christ comes, Emmanuel, God is with us, right? Before Christ comes to be with his people. Before God, the Son, comes to be with his people. Um, and uh, I think that's tremendous symbolism. But I want you to think of this. So he, it says that he was on the right side of the altar, but it never tells us from whose perspective. Is that the right side when you're facing the altar, or the right side if you're coming out of the Holy of Holies? I don't know. So this, typically people tend to think that it's if it's the right side coming from the Holy of Holies. I don't know which it is, but you notice there that the angel is standing right in front of the veil. Well, what's depicted on the veil? Cherubim, or angels, right? I think what happens is that Zacharias is offering incense. He looks up to where he should see a depiction of an angel, and he sees the real thing. It's the real, real thing in this case. And remember, the purpose of the cherubim is to keep us from come, us unholy beings from coming into the presence of God. But in this case, the angel is there to say, soon you will not need to have this veil and these angels on the veil. I am here to announce that, as it were, my job is going out of stock. Uh, I will be obsolete. We will not need to protect you from the presence of God because he who will make it so you can come to the presence of God is on his way. I, I think that is tremendous symbolism. It's beautiful and powerful and wonderful. Um, it, when Zacharias is finally able to talk again, and he gives a, a prophecy. He gives a prophecy about the horn of the son of David. The son of David is Christ that he's talking to. Um, but the horn is probably is thinking of the horn on the incense altar, which represents the power. We talked about that in the first lecture, but it represents the power of the sacrifice of the Son of God. Yeah, this guy didn't know what he was doing. Uh, there, there are some cherubim that are depicted in some cultures with wings, and they're, they're like lions. But ignore this guy. Look at this one. So, all right. So I think that's, that's, there's some added symbolism to the story of, of the Annunciation of John when we recognize what's going on with the temple. Let's look at some other stories with the Savior and, and what's going on there. I need to make sure I have about 15 minutes left. So we're in for a good shape. Whoops. Okay. So the Savior goes to the temple a number of times. We're only going to do two stories. We're going to do the Feast of Tabernacles first and then the Feast of Dedication. All right, the Feast of Tabernacles, or this is the... the the one that celebrates that they were tabernacling in the wilderness as they were journeying from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land, right? So here are some of the things that happened with the Feast of Tabernacles. It is a harvest offering. It's often called the Feast of Ingathering, all right? Because the time of year happens is the time of the harvest. It's Thanksgiving, as it were, all right? It's a harvest offering. But uh, agricultural, agricultural holidays in the Bible are always tied in with a specific historical event that has to do with Jehovah. 
I believe the purpose is, and I'm not the one that came up with this idea, but I believe the purpose is, so you can't start going off and, and attaching it. They did anyway, but they weren't supposed to, it wasn't so easy to go start attaching it to all sorts of other gods or all sorts of other things, which is what often happened with agricultural holidays. Every agricultural holiday was tied in with something Jehovah did for them. This one with Mount Sinai and the, and the guidance in the wilderness, all right? So it commemorates the 40 years in the wilderness. Um, it commemorates that God tabernacled with them there or dwelt with them temporarily with them while they were in the wilderness. And then you have the, the fire by night and the cloud by day. Um, it commemorates the dedication, first of all, of the tabernacle, the giving of, and then dedication of the tabernacle, and then eventually when they built the temple, the dedication of the temple. Um, because the temple was, the instructions for how to build the temple were given to them at Mount Sinai when they received the law, they would, it was associated with the reception of the law of Moses at Mount Sinai. And they would read that law and, and renew the covenant. That was the idea, anyway, that would happen at the Feast of Tabernacles, okay? Um, they would do sacrifices, started out with 13 sacrifices. Uh, it's, it's a week-long uh, holiday, right? So seven and on the eighth day, they just do one. Um, okay, we're going to keep going. Water was associated with this. Uh, they would go to the Pool of Siloam every day. They would go around it once and then pour water. On the last great day, they would go around it seven times, and then they would pour water. And they would also bring the water up to the temple and pour it so it ran out the steps of the temple down into the streets. All right? It was written that this was a time of great joy as the water would go forth from the temple. Um, and this was symbolic of Moses bringing waters that kept them alive at Mount Sinai uh, or them receiving life from God. Okay? And that uh, water is given them there in the promised land. Uh, and that they came to mean that Judaism was the water that God gave to all the earth that eventually they would that symbolism. Alright? They would also light four huge candelabras, four menorahs as it were, um, great big ones out in the in the courtyard. Um, they each had five bowls, and uh, it would light up all of Jerusalem because they had all these huge lights. Okay, so that's what they were doing in the Savior's Day. So water and lights and the reading of law are the core elements of this festival, of this uh, feast. Okay, law, water, and lights. Okay, now let's look at, at what happens when the Savior teaches during this feast. Okay, and I'm going to put up lots of scriptures. We won't read the whole scriptures. I'm going to kind of highlight the stuff that's in red. All right. So in the midst of the feast, uh, this is in John 7, in the midst of the feast, he goes up to the temple and he teaches, and they ask him stuff, and he says, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. Remember that it commemorates that God is with them. Right? So he's drawing on the idea that God is with them and that God has sent him. And then he says, if any man do my will, he should know of myself, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true. Remember that this is also when they celebrate the glory of God coming down to the tabernacle, and that fire that was over the tabernacle that they associated with the glory of God. So they're in the midst of a festival where they associate experiencing God's presence and his glory, and Christ starts to talk about, I am not here to tell you stuff myself, but of God, who is with you and whose glory you are beholding. Um, and so he just takes advantage of what they're already celebrating as he teaches about this. But a few verses later, he starts to talk to them about the law of Moses. Right? He says, Moses gave you the law, but you're going to try and kill me. And then he says, Moses gave you circumcision. And then he says that uh, the law of Moses should not be broken, but you're angry with the Sabbath day. And he goes on to teach other things about the Sabbath day and other things. But he bases it, this is, sorry, he bases it on the teachings of the uh, teachings about the law of Moses. And again, that's one of the things that they are commemorating at this point. Is the law of Moses. So he's basically he's taking things that are already on their mind and teaching about it. A little bit like we might on Christmas, you know, sacramenting our own Christmas time, take what we're thinking about at Christmas and use that to teach because that's what we're prepped for. It's what we're ready to receive and understand, right? That's what we're celebrating. And that's what he does. Note what else he, he does. He says that he's with them now, but soon he will not be. And remember that this is about God being with them for a short time, tabernacling with them, but not always being with them. They catch on to this. They get very upset. They're starting to catch on that he's comparing himself to God. They want to kill him as a result. Then in the last day, so this is the one where they pour all the water and light the, the huge candelabras. The last day, the great day of the feast, the first thing he says is, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. 
as they are celebrating the ritual with the water flowing forth, he calls himself the, the living water, right? And talks about giving them living water. So he is again drawing on the symbolism that they are in the midst of, of enacting as a ritual. The next day in the temple, so it's that night that they would light all those huge candelabras. The next day, oh, I spelled that wrong, there should be a D in there. They asked if the adulterer should be stoned according to the law, right? So it's law of Moses' theme again. And then he teaches them that he is the light of the world. That the morning after they've had all this light, he tells them that he's the light of the world. So when they're pouring the water, he says he's the, the, the waters of life. The next morning after all the light, he says, I'm the light of the world. He draws again and again on the symbolism of the rituals that they are in the midst of. Right? He leaves the, as he leaves the temple, this is when he sees the man born blind and gives him light. That he says, whereas I was blind, now I see. Right? Uh, all in the setting of this light-centered ritual that they've gone through. Right? And he sends him to the water to wash. He combines the two elements as he sends him to the water to wash and behold light. It's just beautiful stuff. All right, let's talk about one other. So this is the Feast of Dedication. So the Feast of Dedication is not one of the, part of the Law of Moses. This is the feast that celebrates when the Maccabees rededicated the temple after it had been desecrated by the, the Greeks. They rededicate the temple. The menorah, um, the, the menorah is lit, and then they find out they don't have enough oil because it, it, it's a special kind of oil, and it takes a while to prepare it. But once it's lit, it's never supposed to go out. So they light the menorah as part of the dedication, and then they find out they don't have enough oil, and it's going to take um, a long time to make it, and the oil they have will burn out before they get the new oil made. Miraculously, the oil never burns out. Um, and so Hanukkah becomes the Feast of Dedication, especially they call it the Feast of Lights, where they, they celebrate that this light did not go out. That's why you're probably familiar with the menorah, and it's got more uh, candelabras than it's typical menorah because they have more light and so on. It's, it's, anyway, it's, it's built around that story, okay? So you've got the, the, this Feast of Lights with the Feast of Dedication. All right, so yeah, we did that. We dedicated the Maccabees. They also read Ezekiel 34, which is the, the chapter about shepherds and a good shepherd and so on, all right? Um, and it was supposed to be a time when the temple was re-sanctified because that's what it celebrated. The temple was rededicated after it had been desecrated. Um, so now let's ask, how does this context affect the teachings of what the Savior does? Well, one of the first things he says during the Feast of Dedication is, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. They just, on the day that he uh, starts talking about this, I suspect it's the day that they've just read Ezekiel 34. Everyone is primed to understand God as the good shepherd. And then Christ comes and says, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. And they catch on that he's comparing himself to God. Right? But again, they are primed and ready to understand this symbolism and, and to listen to it. Now let's look at this, verse 22. And it was at Jerusalem, the Feast of Dedication, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch, so you can kind of picture that. Then came the Jews, and when he says, when John says the word Jews, he doesn't mean just Jews in general, he means the leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then came the Pharisees and Sadducees round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us doubt? If thou be the Christ or the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you believe me not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. So now let's stop and, and think about this. One of the ideas behind the Feast of Dedication is that the miracle of the light not going out was seen as a sure sign that God was with them. That he was accepting of the temple, that God was with them, and, and that they were still Israel. And so it was associated with a miracle being a sign of God being with them. And here Christ says, the works that I do in my Father's name, the word that he uses there, well, we don't know what word he actually used because he's probably speaking in Aramaic, but what, what we have is a Greek translation of what he said. But the word that John uses there is the word that most often he uses for miracle. Uh, that word work, it also means sign, all right? A sign or a work. In, in, in the Gospel of John, he talks about miracles as signs. This is one of the ways you know Christ is who he says he is because he gives you signs by working those miracles. And Christ is saying the same things. The, the works that I'm doing, the miracles that I do, they bear witness of me. If you want to know whether I'm Christ or not, think of whether the miracle bears witness of me. Right now you're celebrating that a miracle bore witness that this is God's temple. I've done greater miracles than this. Now what do you say? What do you think of 
I've given you an answer by the miracles that I do. But, he says, you've had enough witnesses, you should believe, but you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. Again, drawing on that sheep symbolism. And then we get to the one we just said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. This draws on the, the symbolism of Ezekiel 34, which is that a shepherd protects his sheep. And if you have a good shepherd, then prey are not able to get them. They can't take them because the shepherd takes care of them. So he's drawing very clearly on that reading to say he's the good shepherd, and he'll take care of you if you just will listen to him. So again, the, the temple ritual is drawn upon as the Savior teaches. I think uh, that we, that the Savior was never in the temple without teaching and drawing on temple symbolism. And I think that is because this temple, that the Savior taught everywhere he went. Let's be clear about that. But he loved to teach in the temple. The Savior was wont to teach in the temple. And that has not finished. It has not stopped. He was particularly fond of teaching using symbols, and especially of using symbols that were going on around him at the time. This is true anywhere. Right? He's up in Galilee, he's using fishing stories, he's using agricultural stories. When he's in the temple, he uses the rituals of the temple. I don't think that the Savior has changed. I think that the Savior it continues to be fond of or is wont to teach in the temple. And that he uses symbols to teach. He uses the symbols of the rituals to teach us how we can regain his presence. So if we put this together with, oh, we should also say that he is particularly fond of the temple. You can tell that Jesus loved the temple. It was his father's house. He was indignant when it was being desecrated. And when he thought about the destruction that was coming, he wept. And wept bitterly. He loved the temple. I do not think that has changed either. So if we put this together with some of the ideas that we had from the first uh, couple of lectures, that the purpose of the temple is to teach us, and to teach us more than anything about how we can be reunited with God. And then we remember that Christ loves to teach in the temple, and loves to use the rituals of the temple and the symbols of the temple to do that teaching then I hope that we will come to understand that in the temple, and thank goodness we can go again so that now we don't say at this lecture and say, well, I hope you can go next year. But um, I hope you can go soon, whenever you can get that schedule. But um, I hope that when we go, we will take the time to think about what might Christ be wanting to teach us because we can be certain that he is using the rituals around us to teach us about how we can be with God again and what his role is in helping us to be with God again. And of that I testify in the name of Jesus.